It is that time of the week. It's the best time of the week. It is the time for this week's Parsha podcast. And you could argue maybe, maybe, that Shabbos is better. But definitely, if we're not including Shabbos, this is definitely the best time of the week. It's time for this week's Parsha podcast. And I cannot be more excited or more overjoyed to discuss Parsha's Mikates with you, the best audience in the podcast universe, the Parsha podcast audience. And we have a sponsorship. This Parsha podcast is sponsored by Joseph Daniel and Elijah Levi Hiller in loving memory and in honor of Raina Hiller, my beloved wife and best friend of blessed memory. May Hashem bless you and keep you. And may you always know how deeply you are loved and missed. And on behalf of the entire Parsha podcast family, we hope and pray that Raina's soul be elevated in heaven. And we appreciate the sponsorship and the friendship. If you want to sponsor a Parsha podcast, or if you want to let me know how your Hanukkah is going, you can always email me, RabbiWolby at gmail.com. So we're in Parsha's Mikates, and this is the second of three Parshios where the main protagonist is Joseph. And we read his story, and we follow his arc and the trajectory of, of Joseph's narrative in the Torah, and it's really hard to not marvel at Joseph's abilities and Joseph's diverse talent. He's an absolute prodigy. He's a wunderkind. He's a polymath. He's a Renaissance man. In so many different areas, Joseph displays inordinate ability, supernatural, unusual, uncommon ability and talent. He has, of course, tremendous holiness. We're told, Rashi tells us, that Jacob, when he saw Joseph, he saw himself. And he dedicated all his teachings and energy to teach Joseph everything he knows, everything that he studied, all of his Torah. And Joseph, when he is alone and he's abandoned, he never loses his faith. He's able to see God's handiwork and all the bad deeds of others. He has tenacity in resisting sin. He is very adept at dream interpretation, but he never forgets that all his abilities come from God. He attributes all his talents and all his abilities to the Almighty. And this is Parsha. He has this incredible overnight transformation, and at the age of 30, he's running the world's most powerful nation. And he undertakes perhaps the most ambitious project in history, organizing and stockpiling enough food to feed the entire world for seven years. How's that for a five-year plan? Think about what goes into that. The infrastructure, the foresight, the logistics, the politics, the management. What does it take to mobilize a nation to dedicate seven years in anticipation, in planning for seven years of famine. And Joseph pulls it off flawlessly. If we had to make a ranking, who's the most talented person in the Torah? Maybe you'd say, hey, Noah, he built this big boat. He's clearly a very gifted engineer. We're told that he invented the plow. Noah, maybe there's an argument for Noah. Abraham, of course. Moses, maybe makes a good case. But I would imagine it's really hard to beat Joseph in the question of sheer talent and sheer ability. And here's the question I want to ponder today. And this is a question that I'm really obsessed with. 
And I've actually asked it to dozens of people over the past couple of weeks. Joseph is bursting with talent. He's bursting with ability. And he actually actualizes those talents. And the question is, how did his brothers not see it? How did they miss his incredible talent? When Joseph was a kid, maybe a young man, a teenager, they disregard him. They say he's a worthless dreamer. And the only question is, should we kill him? Should we sell him as a slave? He has dreamed that he's going to be teamed over them. And in their eyes, it's total fantasy. Joseph goes to Egypt. Eventually, once the famine hits, the brothers go to Egypt as well to get food, but also to search for Joseph. And they're on the lookout to try to find him. Maybe they could find him. Maybe they could reclaim him, bring him back to his father. And the minister tells us that they entered Egypt in 10 separate entrances to increase the likelihood that they'll bump into, one of them will bump into Joseph. And the Midrash tells us that actually they spent their time looking through all the brothels and all the places of ill repute in Egypt because that's where they thought Joseph would be. And eventually, they're actually standing in front of the very person that they're desperately searching for. And he, after all, is their brother. He's the half-brother of most of them, and he's the full brother of Benjamin. And we're told, by the way, in the Talmudic sources that Joseph actually looked exactly like Jacob. So they're looking at a spitting image of their father. And they're on the lookout for Joseph. And they knew his dream. But it was an option that they never entertained. They never considered that maybe Joseph would become a king. And it's staring them right there in the face. And they're looking right at it. And they missed it. And Joseph, of course, he toys with them. He's winking at them. He's playing all kinds of games with them. In fact, once they bring back Benjamin, he invites them to come over for a meal and he seats them in the order of their age. And they can't imagine. They're incredulous. How did he, how does he know? How does he do this? And of course, you and I are like reading this story and we're like, don't you get it? Don't you get it? This is Joseph. And they just don't see it. So Rashi tells us, quote from the Talmud, well, Joseph, when he left, he was 17 years old and he didn't have a beard. And now he's 30 and now he has a beard. And that's why they couldn't see him. Now, I would imagine that the brothers had beards as well. So they know what a family member with a beard looks like. And it's kind of a little bit strange. You know, if you think about it, you know, I have a daughter who is 20 months now, a little less than two years old, and I have a beard. But a few years ago, I was clean shaven. And if I show her a picture of what I looked like three, four years ago, she right away could spot that's me. So obviously, having a beard alone doesn't truly mask the person. So the Ramban tells us, well, Joseph, when he saw his brothers coming in and he wanted to disguise himself, he contorted his face, he adjusted his crown, maybe he wore some makeup that distorted his features. But come on, they're looking for him. And they're going through all the brothels and they're going through all the places where they would imagine a low life to be hanging out. And they never, in their wildest dreams, they never considered, they never imagined that he would actually make it to the palace. The brothers never considered that Joseph has great leadership, great potential for greatness within him. 
we'd have to say that these brothers were terrible talent evaluators. They spent 17 years with arguably the most talented person in history, and they never knew it. They were oblivious to it. They have this gaping blind spot that did not allow them to see who Joseph was and what he could become. And I think this raises an important question. Why were they so bad at seeing Joseph's potential? How did they miss it? It was staring them in the face and they just couldn't see it. I think this is a very important question for us to ponder in general. You know, any good parent, any mentor, that's what they have to do. They have to try to isolate and identify the talents and the abilities, the innate abilities of their charge, of their child, of their pupil. And once you know what gifts a person has from God, you try to cultivate that. You try to create an environment where that could surface, where that could flourish. So I think it's very important for us to figure out how did the brothers not have the necessary quality that we must have if we want to be good pedagogues, if we want to raise good children or be a mentor for others. What I find interesting is that Joseph is not the only one whose brothers did not appreciate his talents. Of course, the family of David, they also don't imagine that David is worthy of becoming the king. And this story is told, of course, the book of Samuel. After the first king of the Jewish people, Saul, he doesn't destroy the family of Amalek, and he is going to be deposed. And God tells Samuel, go to the family of Jesse, the family of Yishai. One of his sons is the next king. He travels and he goes to Jesse's family and they line up the seven sons and he goes through one by one and none of them are qualified. And he asks Jesse, well, do you have any more sons? And Jesse responds, well, there's this other boy and he's a little bit odd. And he likes to hang out with the flock and he's a shepherd and he's into music. He's not your guy. He's a redhead, ruddy face. He, he's not going to be the king of the Jewish people. You don't need to worry about that. He's he's not your man. And Samuel says, well, let me see him anyhow. And David comes and he's like the laughing stock of the family. He's the black sheep of the family. And Samuel pulls out the anointment oil, pours it over his head and says, you are the king of Israel. And of course, David goes on to becoming one of the great heroes of our history. But even his own family, even Jesse and his brothers, the brothers of David, they did not think that he had the chops. His own family disregards him. My favorite verse, one of my favorite verses of the book of Psalms is Evan Moasu Habonim. There was a stone that even the builders, even the supposed experts, they despised. They failed to realize what it was. And eventually that stone, Haisal Rosh Pina, became the cornerstone. So we have these parallel stories. Two of our history's greatest leaders, they're woefully undervalued by their own family. And how did the people who were so close to greatness, how were they so dreadful at noticing it, at appreciating it? I think a few weeks ago as well in the Parsha, we had the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar marries Judah's oldest son. He dies. The next son, he dies as well. 
And Judah thinks that she's a rotten apple. And he doesn't want to give Tamar his third son because maybe he'll die as well. So Judah fails to recognize that it was his sons who were responsible for the death, not Tamar, their wife. And truthfully, of course, you read the rest of the story, she is a great heroine, and Judah missed it. He couldn't appreciate it. He has a blind spot. My father told me once a story regarding one of my siblings. I'm not going to tell you which one. That he had a conversation with one of the heads of the yeshiva that my sibling was in. And he, my father, was trying to convey a message to the head of the yeshiva, you know, how to deal with his son, i.e. My, my brother, my sibling, and, you know, what's the best approach. You know, like any good father wants to lobby the educators, you know, to discuss things and to do what's best for the development and the progression of the child. And the head of the yeshiva says something shocking. He says, what are you so worried about this kid? Don't you know that nothing will amount of him? So first of all, you know, that alone is a statement that should disqualify a person from being an educator. You know, if you just heard that, that a an educator, a teacher, someone who was supposed to influence others has a complete disregard for the potential of a student, that alone is enough to say this person is not qualified. But what's actually interesting is this particular child that was being discussed is one of the most successful and talented and gifted and creative and dedicated people that I've ever met. And I've met a lot of very talented and dedicated and creative people. Someone who does so much, who accomplishes so much. Someone, again, obviously, was bursting with talent. And someone who is hired, whose job ostensibly is to cultivate that talent, could make such a shocking statement and say, well, nothing's going to happen. But this, obviously, the kids, the kids are going to be a failure. So we see that something, there's something that exists wherein people have a blind spot and they cannot see the talent that's there. You know, I think even in modern times and even for totally secular subjects, I feel like this is something that we're really bad at. People have a hard time evaluating talent that hasn't been cultivated. You know, this week, maybe we should not be discussing this on the Parsha podcast, but this week, the biggest contract in NBA history was signed. And the athlete who signed it when he was in the draft, so you would imagine he's the best player. He's, he was signed for so much money. He must be very talented. And everyone everyone knew that, right? He wasn't drafted first. He wasn't even drafted 10th. He was drafted 15th, meaning that the people who are ostensibly the world's experts at evaluating basketball talent, they thought that there were 14 other players that were better. And it's kind of amazing. These are people whose job, like the, the, the scouts and the, the people who are in charge of making these selections, these are ostensibly the best people in the world at doing this exact thing, and they're just terrible at it. 
And I think the next example may get me some hate mail, but the greatest NFL football player of all time was drafted at the end of the sixth round, number 199 of his draft, meaning that, again, the people that are essentially the best in the world doing this, they thought that there were 198 other players in that particular year who were better candidates than the person, than the athlete that went on to be not just the best player of his draft, but the best player of all the drafts, and everyone missed it. And it's just an amazing thing to just dwell upon and to think about, to ruminate upon, that we're really bad at this, collectively, shall we say, as a species. But even people like Joseph's brothers, who of course are are hailed as great heroes of our history, the fathers of our tribes, they didn't see it. Now, on the flip side, you have stories from our history where people were able to identify the great talent that was latent within certain people. For example, Talmud tells us a story of Rabbi Yochanan, who was the greatest rabbi in the land of Israel in the third century of the Common Era. And he was once bathing in the Jordan, and there was a bandit who was like a thief and a murderer, a head of a, of a group of conquistadors. And he was jumping over the river. I, was, I don't remember exactly if he was jumping over the river or into the river, but he was someone who was displaying tremendous physical prowess. And Rabbi Yochanan sees this bandit, obviously has nothing to do with Torah, not righteous. He's a sinner. And Rabbi Yochanan sees him and immediately spots his ability. And he tells him, which means your strength should be for Torah. Why are you using your strength for bad purposes? He saw the talent. It just was, wasn't being directed at something productive. And he encouraged him, well, use it for Torah. So this bandit responded, your beauty should be for women. I.e., he looked at the great rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan, who was very beautiful. And he says, it's such a waste. You have such beauty. It should go to women. It shouldn't be. It's wasted on a man. Just like you're saying my strength is wasted on, on banditry, it should be used for Torah, your beauty is wasted on you, it should be, it should be given to women. So Yochanan makes a deal with me, he says, listen, my sister is even more beautiful. And if you commit yourself to go study Torah and to use your strength for Torah, then I'll convince my sister to marry you and you'll have a wife that's even more beautiful than me. Is it a deal? They strike a deal. Afterwards, Rish Lakish i.e. the bandit, he tries to jump out of the river like he was doing previously, and he can't do it. His physical prowess was sapped once he dedicated it for spiritual goals. And indeed, what happened? Rabbi Yochanan was the greatest sage in the land, and his new brother-in-law eventually became the second greatest sage in the land because he had all this amazing talent. It just wasn't being directed for a good cause, But once he committed it for Torah, well, he just had a meteoric ascension and became one of the greatest rabbis of history and is featured all over the Talmud, this great hero. And we see again a story of of someone who's able to spot just looking at someone and just having a passing 
image of a person and say, I look at you, I'm willing to commit everything, I'm willing to bet the farm that you'll become a great Torah scholar. Instant appreciation of his talent. Similarly, there's the story of Rachel, the wife of Rabbi Tiva. She was the daughter of the richest Jew alive. And Rabbi Akiva was an ignorant shepherd working for her father. And she was able to identify the great talent that Rabbi Akiva had. And she said to him, I will marry you if you commit yourself to go study Torah. And they made a deal. And her father disowned her. Rabbi Akiva went to go study. 24 years later, he's the greatest sage in the land. Again, Rachel, the wife of Rabbi Akiva, had this ability that apparently the brothers of Joseph did not have. She could just see a person and right away be able to forecast what will be in the future if this person marshals all their abilities, if they put it all together, what will they result? And she was, of course, vindicated. So they're able to see, i.e. Rabbi Yochanan and the wife of Rabbi Tiva, Rachel, they're able to see the latent potential that no one else saw, and yet the brothers of David... And the brothers of Joseph were not able to see that. My grandmother told me that when my father's older sister, my aunt or aunt, when she was born, so my grandfather would stare at the bassinet for hours. And he wanted to see what characteristics the child has. He was intent on capturing at the very beginning of the child's life to be able to sense what are their strengths, what are their abilities. And he made the very provocative statement, well, after a week, you can't even tell. Because after a week, the kid just tries to copy everyone around them. In fact, my grandfather said of one of my brothers, he told my father, if you don't mess this kid up, he'll become a great Torah scholar. He'll become a great person. Because he had the ability to look and see what talent a person has. And by the way, that was not me. He said other things about me. So we see that even in modern times, it's possible to have this great skill, this very valuable skill, of being able to identify the future potential that is latent, that is hidden within a person. The brothers don't have it. The brothers not of Joseph or of David. And yet we see stories in the Talmud and even in modern times that people do have this ability of talent evaluation and hopefully leading to talent cultivation and people actualizing their potential. I think it's such an important question to ponder. And I think the question is better than the answer. The whole notion that there could be otherworldly talent right in front of us and we just miss it. I think it's a very provocative, and frankly, it's quite a terrifying concept. The brothers, they thought they knew Joseph inside out, and they didn't see it. And the question is, of course, why? Or how is it even possible that they could be so ignorant of what turns out to be such an obvious fact, post facto? So I had this question, and I shared it with a lot of different people. And everyone seemed to have a perspective. I'm sure you, the listener, you probably have some ideas of your own. And I want to share some of the answers that I got. And I think there's truth in all of them. And there's lessons in all of them. 
And I encourage you to think about this because it's a very valuable thing. It's a very valuable thing to know that at least there is the possibility of people that we're surrounding ourselves with, our family, our friends, our coworkers. I would imagine if you're a boss, if you're a manager, this is a very important thing to be able to identify talent and hopefully cultivate that talent. Maybe even within ourselves to identify our own gifts, our own potential, our own abilities. Isn't that a supremely valuable thing to, to know to have? So I think the question, or at least the concept, is more important than the answer. But I want to share with you all some of the answers that I did get. So I did get an answer. I think this is probably a very true thing. That the Almighty did not want this information to go out. He wanted the brothers to have enmity towards Joseph in order to effectuate the sale of Joseph and the cascade of events that followed, ultimately fulfilling the promise made to Abraham all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, when Abraham was told that you should know surely that your children will be far as a foreign land and they'll be oppressed and they'll be enslaved for 400 years and then they will leave with great wealth. So I think that's probably the, the, the true answer. The Almighty, so to speak, created this artificial obfuscation of Joseph's talent in order to effectuate everything that followed. But I think there's another point here. I think the brothers were predisposed to find Joseph's flaws. You can only see what you allow yourself to see. And you will not see what you don't want to see. Envy will make you blind. Hatred will make you incapable of seeing the good in other people. They hated Joseph. And they didn't want him to succeed. And that made them blind to his talent. Unless you love someone, you are incapable of seeing anything other than their flaws. If you want to see someone's greatness or someone's potential for greatness, you have to love them. It could be staring you in their face and it won't matter. And I think there's another point to this. Joseph, in his dreams, he portrayed himself as king and them as his subjects. So for them to accept Joseph's premise as being a king, they would necessarily have to accept the fact that their own standing would be diminished. And they even tell him, are you going to lord over us? Are you going to rule us? They were concerned, they were worried about becoming diminished, about becoming smaller. And therefore they judged them relative to themselves, not in isolation. And that perhaps made them biased and faulty judges of talent, and that's why they missed it. There's this wonderful quote from Upton Sinclair that I love. Quote, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Maybe we could amend that quote and say, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his self-esteem depends upon his not understanding it. The brothers for them to accept that Joseph would become king, they necessarily had to accept that they would become small, they would become diminished, and only someone 
who is comfortable in their own flesh and in their own standing can properly assess someone else's talent. And I think there's another answer perhaps that we could speculate. Maybe people are incapable of evaluating talent that far exceeds their own ability. You know, everyone comes with their own vantage point, with their own perspective. And David was so much more talented than his siblings, and therefore they just cannot conceptualize something that's so much more advanced than them. And maybe the same thing we said about the brothers of Joseph. Joseph was almost on the same level as the patriarchs. He's like this bridge, we're told, between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the tribes and the 12 sons of Jacob. And consequently, he is greater than them and therefore that precludes them, perhaps, some speculation here, that precludes them from being able to properly appreciate that. And I also think that the brothers really had something that justified or that vindicated their concern with Joseph. This is something we mentioned in the past. Often, maybe always, the greater someone's potential, the larger and more destructive are their faults, at least initially. We know the Eight Sahara, the evil creation, it attacks the powerful, not the feeble. And you look at the two examples, both from the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva and Reish Lakish, both of them displayed a certain enmity towards Torah before they themselves, so to speak, joined and committed themselves to it. The Talmud tells that Rabbi Akiva told his students that before he started studying Torah, he had this pathological hatred towards the rabbis and he said, I wanted to bite them like a donkey. And the students said, well, who says that? Do you want to bite them like a donkey? you want to bite them like a dog? So Rabbi Akiva responded, no, 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 I had such hatred for them. I wanted to bite them like a donkey because a donkey, when it bites, it cracks the bones. The dog, when it bites, it doesn't crack the bones. I think it's interesting that he had some sort of fire in his belly that actually belied his potential for greatness. And Joseph is someone that we see he has a certain drive, a certain passion that could be channeled in a different way, in some sort of counterfactual way towards becoming a great sinner. David as well. We spoke about this in previous weeks, that both David and Joseph were mirror images of Asaph, that maybe had they made different choices, not only they wouldn't have been great, they wouldn't have been neutral or mediocre or okay or so-so either, they would have been horrific sinners. And the the polarity, so to speak, between someone who could become very, very, very great, well, that same person, should they make other choices, could become very, very, very bad. I had a friend once, still a friend of mine. He was someone who joined the yeshiva, came to the yeshiva only at the age of 26. He grew up in a maybe a traditional family, but he never was exposed to advanced Torah study, certainly not to Talmud. And, you know, he finished his law school and he passed the bar and he came to Israel and he came with the expectation of being there for three weeks but he absolutely loved it. He felt like he came home and he extended his stay. Eventually, he stayed for a couple of years. Eventually, he got married. He's still there. He's been there for more than a decade. 
But he once told me something that really struck me. Again, he didn't grow up Shomer Shabbos, not Shomer Shabbos. You know, he wasn't family didn't need kosher or anything like that. And now he's like a great Torah scholar. And he has he got married, he has he has a family, he's becoming a very, very talented and capable rabbi. And also just an awesome guy. And he told me something. He said, the first time I ate a cheeseburger, first time I ate it, it was on Yom Kippur. And it's almost like he had this urge to sin spitefully. It's Yom Kippur. Of course, the day we're not supposed to eat at all. And it's a cheeseburger. It's like the milk and meat together. And I'm going to do it on Yom Kippur. Someone like that, who has almost this, this, this superpower of a Yetzahara, that is evidence that they also have the potential, this, the superpower, so to speak, become super righteous and a great Torah scholar. And if someone's like, you know, kind of blasé, you know, not so eager, you know, no passion, someone who is just more of like a humdrum kind of personality, that actually is an indication that maybe they don't have so much potential to become a great scholar. The brothers were very wary of Joseph and they thought he would end up in the brothels because there was good reason for that. And you know what? Maybe had Joseph capitulated to sin, he would have ended up in the bar- or in the brothels. It's only because he made this choice that radically changed his fortunes and assured that the option of him becoming king would be selected. But the brothers were accurate, in fact, in their assessment to a certain degree. There's a very good chance that Joseph would end up as being a total lowlife. I also think this is a tangential point. I also think it's worthy to speculate that perhaps Joseph benefited from ostracization. What would have been had Joseph been the golden boy? He always flourished. His brothers just loved him. They always believed in him. They always encouraged him. If he didn't have this, this kind of chip in his shoulder, this nobody believes in me attitude, he didn't have this alienation, you kind of wonder, would Joseph have amounted to what he became? Maybe it's all this adversity and all this alienation. He's the pariah of the family. Maybe that actually contributed towards him becoming as great as he ultimately became. I think it's a very interesting thing to ponder. But I want to suggest one more idea just to wrap up this interesting subject. We know that the concept of Messiah applies in two different ways or regarding two different people. There's Messiah ben David from the tribe of Judah and there's Messiah ben Joseph from Joseph. So there's two kings. We have the king of Egypt is now, of course, Joseph. And the monarchy of the Jewish people goes through David, who is from Judah. So who is the king of the Jewish people? Well, we kind of have two of them. We have Joseph, the king, but he's really a king over the non-Jews. He's a king in Egypt. And we have Judah, who is the king over us. And the idea of Messiah is going to come in these two different ways, we're told. 
It's one of the most mysterious concepts that we find. There's really not a lot of very clear explanation of what this means. But we're told traditionally that there's going to be two messiahs. The first, first we'll have a messiah Ben Joseph, a Josephian character, a king who's going to influence really the world at large, almost like in a, a secular or political way. And there's Messiah Ben David, the ultimate Messiah. The first one's going to die, Messiah Ben Joseph's going to die, and it's going to be very tragic. What that means, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But there's also going to be a Messiah Ben David. I find it interesting that these two stories that parallel each other so similarly, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers, both of them are the forebearers of these two messiahs. And maybe the idea is that the concept of messiah must be hidden. The idea of redemption can never come from the way that it is anticipated, the way it is telegraphed. It has to be that the messiah is going to be someone who's a surprise. You know, Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers, I don't want to spoil it for you, but that's going to be an extra part show. That is a tremendous surprise to them. It hits them like a ton of bricks because they were not expecting it. As we say, it came out of left field. And David as well. And that is the nature of redemption. It's not something that we could telegraph. It comes from God. And when it happens, it's a total shock. It's a total surprise. So maybe that's the idea. The idea that David and Joseph, it has to be that their greatness is obscured, at least initially, before they are revealed. Maybe. But I think the the general takeaway that I want to pull out of this whole discussion is the entire concept of people having tremendous talent and potential that can be missed. And I think certainly as parents and educators and hopefully maybe even mentors of other people, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that maybe the most talented person in all of Genesis, maybe in the whole Torah, maybe all of history was someone, Joseph, whose talent was totally ignored and was totally not appreciated by the people that were closest to him. Okay, let's begin with this week's A and Q. Answers and questions. I'm going to give you a question, and you are going to give me an answer, like y'all have done every week now since the beginning of this cycle. Chapter 42, verse 1. This is the first time that the brothers go down to Egypt. Jacob tells his boys there's a famine, and I know that there is food, there is sustenance in Egypt. Go down to Egypt and get the food from there. But the verse concludes, Lama tisra'u. Why would you make yourself conspicuous? What does this mean? So Rashi tells us that actually Jacob had plenty of food. Even though there was a famine and no one around him had food, Jacob actually had plenty. But he was worried that what's going to be when everyone sees that we still have food? Everyone's going to Egypt after all, because Egypt, there's plenty over there. And everyone's going to buy, to purchase from Joseph's stockpiles. Everyone's going to Egypt. And if we don't go, everyone assumes that we have tons of grain, which we actually do. And we're going to make ourselves conspicuous. And in the eyes of, of the sons of Asaph and the sons of Ishmael, they're going to look negatively at us. They're going to be envious of us. They're going to have hatred and enmity towards us because we're showing off we have grain. 
And therefore, even though we don't need it, go to Egypt anyhow to get more food. That's what Rashi tells us. So here's the question. How is it that the entire world is blindsided by this horrific famine and only because Joseph knew, thanks, of course, to the dream, he knew that this was going to happen, he prepared for it, and he stockpiled, and therefore he saved the entire world. But the whole world was not prepared for it. Yet, Jacob apparently anticipated it, and he had plenty of grain. And the only reason why he sent his children to Egypt, it's only because he didn't want to show off. He didn't want to be boastful about it. He wanted to flaunt it and not raise the ire of the descendants of Esav and of Ishmael. How did Jacob know that a fan was about to hit and he needed to stock up? Was Jacob a prepper? Was he a survivalist? How did he have the foreknowledge of the pending famine? He knew about it, apparently, and no one else did. And also, why is he specifically worried about the sons of Esav and Ishmael? You would imagine there's other people in Canaan, and they too, perhaps, would look negatively on Jacob if he has tons of food and they're all starving. Yet Rashi is very clear, and this is quoting from the Talmud, that Jacob has plenty of food and he's worried if he is going to not descend to Egypt to get food like everyone else is doing, he is going to raise the envy and the ire of the families of Ishmael and Esau specifically. So how did Jacob know to stockpile food and why is he worried specifically regarding the sons of Esau and Ishmael? That's this week's A&Q. If you have an answer, you can email me, rapobajima.com. So last week, I asked the question of why does every stage of Joseph's transformation, why is it precipitated by a dream? Now, on Friday, I recorded a podcast called Hanukkah and Joseph. And if you listened to that particular podcast, that was not put on the Parsha podcast channel. It was put on my other channel called This Jewish Life. And if you listen to that podcast, you actually have the answer to the question. And the answer, briefly, I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't listened to that other podcast, but the answer briefly is that the greatness of Joseph specifically was the fact that Joseph symbolized holiness in every part of your life. Normally, dreams are nonsense. That's what it is normally. It's imagination. It's fantasy. It's not real. It's not real life. And that's why the brothers, they derided him as a dreamer. He wasn't serious. But what actually is Joseph's greatest characteristic was that with regarding him, even the dreams were spiritual. And that's why it's important for every transformation in his life to happen as a result of his particular characteristic. And that is something that we see throughout Genesis that the great characteristic of every individual is the area in which they're tested, and that's the area also where they advance. You know, Abraham, he exemplifies kindness, and his test specifically is, will you show kindness when God says don't? And thus, it's his kindness that catapults him, so to speak, to the next level. And similar with Joseph, 
his greatness is the fact that he brings holiness to the places you would not anticipate it, i.e. Egypt, i.e. the dreams or the arena of dreams. And that's why his transformation happens via dreams. Now, I didn't remember when I asked the question that the whole subject of doubling the dreams would actually be featured in our Parsha when Joseph interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. He tells him, well, the reason why it's doubled, it's because it's about to happen. It's pending. It's going to be immediate. Immediately, we're going to have the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine. But Joseph is telling us that when a dream is doubled, so of course, if a dream is prophetic, that's stage one. But if we have a prophetic dream that's doubled, that means that the actualization of that dream is going to be instantaneous. It's going to be immediate. It's not going to be something that's happening in the future. It's happening now. And of course, the great takeaway of that is that when Joseph, at the age of 17, he has a double prophetic dream that he's going to be king, well, it took 13 years for it to be actualized. Yet he himself is telling us that it happened instantly. Why? Because it was doubled. And thus, he instantly became a success overnight, 13 years later. And that's the dichotomy here. On one hand, it's instant, but that means that the process, the ball gets rolling, so to speak, right away, but every step of those 13 years is just the actualization of Joseph becoming king. What Joseph is telling us, the lesson that we're learning from this is, that it was instant. It just took 13 years. But those 13 years, that is the process of Joseph's coronation. And all the lows that he has, he's sold as a slave. He is divested of his clothing. They want to kill him even. He is falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's languishing in prison with no hope, apparently. All of those lows were actually the various stages of his coronation. A very powerful idea. And I encourage you, if you have not yet done so, to listen to the Hanukkah slash Joseph podcast, Hanukkah and Joseph on the This Jewish Life podcast channel. And again, as always, it's a total joy and a pleasure to study the Parsha with y'all each week. And I am speaking to you from the wonderful Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Our organization is called Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston. I make one hard request for your support each year. So I'm not making any hard requests, but maybe we'll call it a soft request. If you want to support our organization still in 2020, we are now towards the end of 2020. It's December. Go to our website, torchweb.org, and see if you want to support us. We thank you for your support. We thank you for your listenership. We thank you for your friendship. Have an amazing rest of your Hanukkah. Have an incredible Shabbos, and please, God, we will talk next week.